Welcome to Inside West Point, Ideas That Impact. I'm Brigadier General Shane Reeves, the Dean of the United States Military Academy at West Point. Through a series of discussions, we will show you a different side of West Point, where we will make even our most complex initiatives accessible to broad audiences and give you an inside view to our cross-disciplinary work, which is being applied throughout the world. Colonel Will Wright began his career as an armor officer in cavalry units. In his early career, he deployed with 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment to Bosnia, Egypt, and Iraq. After his troop command, Colonel Wright was selected into the Space Operations Functional Area, known as Functional Area 40. As a space operator, he served as a Missile and Space Domain Chief at NORAD, where he monitored and reported on events detected by strategic remote sensing systems. At West Point, Colonel Wright is the Program Director of the Geospatial Information Science Program in the Department of Geography and Environmental Engineering. His research and teaching interests include photogrammetry, global navigation satellite systems, LIDAR, remote sensing, and geographic information systems. As part of his operational experience while at West Point, Colonel Wright deployed to Djibouti, Africa with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency in 2019 where he supported the NGA team assigned to Combined Joint Task Force Horn of Africa. Will, welcome to the podcast. Looking forward to our talk today. Well, thank you, sir. So, Will, tell me a little bit about your educational background as an undergraduate as well as a graduate student. Sure. Well, actually, it starts when I was eight. <laughs> My grandfather was in Patton's Third Army as an assistant G2. And when he came back, he had two large after-action review books. So... You know, eight and a half by 11, or maybe it was 11 by 17 books, and they were several inches thick. And as you flip through them as a young kid, I got exposed to maps with the annotated graphics on it, as well as some aerial imagery Mm. that they used for mission planning. And it didn't register initially there how relevant geospatial sciences was. But when I finally got to West Point and saw the mapping, charting, and geodesy major here, it instantly clicked the relevance of this discipline in the military. Mm. My initial interest really was in economics, but John Brockhouse was my former advisor and, and actually a former boss of mine. And he started explaining site suitability analysis, the applications across all sorts of different disciplines, but specifically things like where you should build a Starbucks coffee shop for the best price value and, and certain strategic locations. So that's that was the path at West Point. It was really the discipline is what inspired me to, to be a lifelong learner. I think when you look at the day that I got enrolled in cartography and what happened with my grade point average after that, it went from not great to really good. Hence your interest. That's where the interest goes from. Totally piqued my interest, wanted to do the homework ahead of time. I actually did homework on the weekends. Anyway, I knew when I left here, I wanted to come back to teach. It actually was one of the things that drove some of my decisions in my military career was to try to get back here. And so... Part of that, when I was able to come back, I found a University of Florida program. Its title is Geosensing Engineering. Really technical program there, and it focuses heavily on LIDAR. Can you, can you explain what is LIDAR? Sure. LIDAR, similar to what we would refer to as radar, is radio waves. You, you transmit a radio wave. You know the time of flight of that radio wave, and it hits something, and it comes back, and you detect that signal. So you get a distance from point A to point B so we can tell you where something is or how fast something is going from the standpoint of, say, a radar gun for a a police officer. So LIDAR is the same thing except with laser beams. 
you know, recent news has a lot of LIDAR systems being put onto self-driving cars and autonomous cars so that you know what's around you. So same, that's the basic technology. But if you put that on an air, aircraft and you orient the LIDAR system down, you'll be able to map the earth and you'll be able to get the tops of trees, but you also get some of that light beams going to the bottom of the forest. And so you'll be able to say how tall a tree is and where the bottom of the ground is. So we can start taking measurements of tree heights and you can find structures such as buildings and other things that you wouldn't normally be able to see. So this is interesting. I, I just recently read that in Central America, an entire new basically civilization or megastructures were found in the jungle that had never been found before. Was this done through LIDAR technology? Yeah, it's, it was done through LIDAR. What they would call it is airborne laser swath mapping. It's from the same research center from that University of Florida center called NCOM, the National Center for Laser Mapping. And the folks that I got my master's degree with, they were part of that discovery. That program moved from University of Florida to University of Houston, and they partner with Berkeley as well. So it's a University of Houston and Berkeley partnership. So talk a little bit about your graduate student time at the University of Florida, which is, I, I believe, where you, you got your graduate degrees, right? Sure. The first thing that comes to mind is the nightmare of having to read from front to cover our calculus book from West Point <laughs> and relearning that after eight years away from it. Yeah, I mean, got exposed to all sorts of, of great science and technologies and, and really how things have evolved since graduating from West Point in 1999. Pretty technical stuff. We did, my research really focused on looking at GPS satellites as they flew through the sky or fell over the earth, reading its signals, and then determining signal loss based on how much forest canopy detected by LIDAR it was being transmitted through. And then for my PhD, I did the same thing, but instead of limiting it to just LIDAR, I was looking at sky-oriented phot photography to do the same thing. And the ramifications of that would be if you're in a jungle environment operating, what systems would you anticipate to have a high confidence of receiving signal? So whether that's satellite communications or broadcasting on SINGARs or whatever the case happens to be, we can tell you a little bit about whether or not we would have a high confidence of being able to communicate or what the best platform would be to use at any given time. So after you got your master's, you came back to West Point and taught. And did you know immediately that you wanted to go off and continue your education, get a PhD, or was there a, you know, some thought of not doing that? That's a great question. It's ingrained in my memory at how impressive the third year rotating officers are at West Point as a first year. You just, you see all the publications they're doing, how good they are in the classroom, you know, the extra, what we call margin of excellence stuff that they become a part of. And I was intimidated so much. So, you know, my initial inclination was I'm, I may not be cut out to go get a PhD and, and be somebody that comes back here to get this. But the mechanisms at West Point that we have in place to teach our officers to be really good teachers, and then the mentorship that I got from the faculty members inside the GIS program helped me write some papers for conferences and other journal articles. And by the time I was a third-year rotator, I was that guy for others. I had several you know, papers published. I was traveling to conferences. I had people interested in my research. And so I would say first year, the answer to that question was I probably didn't want to come back or I was, I was intimidated and, and thought maybe it wasn't the right thing. And by the time I was a second year officer teaching here, I knew for sure this was home. How did your research and scholarship inform your teaching and did it, and did it and does it in your estimation make you a more effective and better professor? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I've taught a wide variety of classes in our discipline. The geographic information systems is kind of a computer mapping class. And through research as well as consulting for, for companies, there's real world applications, whether it's military or civilian or whatever the case happens to be, that when you bring the so what to using a certain tool or doing specific labs in a class, it wakes everybody up. It's right. these real world scenarios where you can tell somebody, somebody paid me $300 an hour to do something or paid a former instructor that got out of the army, you know, a certain amount of money to, to do, make this one map or do this one thing. And it brings, it just brings relevance into the classroom and the cadets instantly wake up and are just switched on to learn more. Yeah. All right. So you started as an armor officer and served a number of cavalry assignments. And then you were selected to be a space officer or space operations officer, known as, a, again, a functional area 40. Why did you make that transition? And then I want to talk a little bit about this domain known as, as space and the importance of it. So why did you make the transition? I knew a little bit about space from a former commander in my unit, and I had talked to him about what he was doing, and it seemed interesting. I saw the alignment of what geospatial sciences you know, the technologies that it harnesses and how that's applied in the space domain. So in the, in FA-40, there's five space force enhancement areas that we care about. One of them's environmental monitoring. Then there's ISR or intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, global navigation satellite or global navigation satellite systems. So positioning, navigation and timing is what we call it or GPS. Then we have missile warning and satellite communications. Four of those five is right in our wheelhouse of what we do in the GIS major. We teach a surveying class where we use GPS. We're harnessing remote sensing in numerous classes of ours, whether that's the photogrammetry class or remote sensing classes. Missile warning is a remote sensing technology. And when you apply remote sensing in GIS to look at something as simple as deforestation in the Amazon from, say, 1960s, 70s, there's free data out there where you can grab Landsat imagery pull that into your remote sensing platform and then have every 10 years, you can watch the deforestation. That's your environmental monitoring. That's one of those Space Force enhancement areas. So it, it just seemed like a perfect alignment for a geospatial information science person to go space. And what I found when I got to NORAD is, is I understood the architecture of the strategic systems for missile warning. You know, in two and a half years, I'm pretty sure that I was on the watch 80% of the time, something really crazy happened. <laughs> and we were able to troubleshoot that pretty quickly. And I think what makes an Army officer unique from some others is that we're used to, and as an armor officer, we're used to being a decision maker or working for decision makers. I was able to effectively communicate the things that the command center director needed to know or the NORAD commander needed to know to make a timely decision without totally nerding out on the physics and the science behind what was going on and, and tell him how soon he has to make a decision. So what were some of the opportunities you experienced in your career where you started to, as an armor officer, perhaps, where you were like, hey, this is, I see a gap and I would really like to start to, to work towards filling some of those gaps? Sure. That's, I saw that almost instantaneously. Within three months of arriving to Fort Carson, I was in Bosnia. And having been a GIS major, I saw all these awesome maps and all this great technology and all these satellite companies that are giving us imagery. We go to Bosnia and we're operating on really old maps, you know, 20 years old. It was hard to get new maps. We had zero imagery. You fast forward from 1999, 2000 to 2003, and we're in Iraq, getting ready to go to Iraq. And I remember being, I was 
a very senior lieutenant. I was basically a very junior captain. I was a junior captain. Stop move was in, and I was just this extra officer that my battalion commander had. And I'm sitting there slicing maps apart and stitching them together for the S3 shop. And we had a trunk full of maps for the entire country of Iraq. I mean, a trunk, like the West Point trunk (laughs) full of maps. And they were probably 20, 30 years old. And again, I was frustrated that there wasn't something better. And so one of kind of my initiatives since I've been here is to show cadets where they can get new satellite imagery and how to get grid lines on them. So in our DIRT class, every cadet gets exposed to Maxar's Digital Globe platform where you can throw your CAT card in, register for an account. What is DIRT very quickly? Sure. DIRT is our physical geography class. It's a required class for all cadets to take. They'll take it in their freshman or sophomore year, plebeer, yearling year. And they get exposed to a wide range of the physical landscape as well as the human landscape where we find ourselves as officers operating in. And so talking to the the king of dirt, as we call him, the course director (laughs) of dirt, I suggested that they give a lesson on and everybody get an account to be able to download this imagery. In places outside of the United States, you can download this imagery. And in certain places, it'll only be three days old. In others, it'll be a month or two months old. But we're not dealing with maps that are 30 years old. You know, certain features on the ground is right there. And with a very easy click of the button, you can put your military grid reference line on it and people can navigate on them. So that's just, that's one example of harnessing this technology and making our young leaders know what they have available to them as they go out to the force. Because you can't really predict where you're going to be. But if you have that tool in your tool bag, you can be the officer that's armed and you can provide that platform. There seems to be a real military necessity for not just young officers, but for the United States military, especially with this expeditionary mission to have access to this technology. I, is this something that's widely available and used by by the Army at this point? Or is there still, you know, a, a bit of stitching maps together before you go somewhere? Well, I think there's always going to be the need to stitch maps together. You just never know what is going to happen to technology. So you've always got a plan for being in an austere environment where you don't have the bandwidth that you would expect for or that you would, you just can't take it for granted. That said, I think there are enough people now that know that the technology is out there that they can continue to update their maps and these products. And if you have a topo engineering type group, your engineer folks or your geospatial planning cells or a space team, they can pull that data on plotters and continue to update the units with new maps. I would say that they're still, we're probably still falling short across the army of making sure everybody knows the technology's out there. But I think we're getting better at educating the force. I've heard that they're training the new second lieutenants about the, the imagery download capabilities. Yeah, because it's, it definitely also seems like it'd be an advantage for the military that has access to this technology and can apply it at the lowest level simply for the fact that that uh, that gives those those soldiers or those units the ability to navigate in a much more clear and, and transparent way. So, I mean, as you said, hopefully this is something that's developing. But what advances have you seen since you've gotten so deep into this field and where do you see it going? The spatial resolution of satellite images that we were would would be able to see would be a few meters 
in spatial, each pixel size, like, uh, you know, more than a meter. And now almost every commercial satellite system is at least a meter, if not smaller, a foot. So the level of detail you can get on a remote sensing image from commercially available is really remarkable. The other piece is if you wanted a part of the Earth imaged, you would task a satellite, you would wait a few days for that satellite to be over the area that you want, you would capture the data, then it would be processed, it would take you several days to get it. Today, one constellation alone images the entire surface of the Earth daily. It's, the spatial resolution is a couple meters, but it's available to you almost instantaneously. Wow. So from a remote sensing standpoint, the, what you're able to glean, the sensors and what's on the sensors that you can see is amazing, how often that you can collect the data is amazing. It's no longer can we get the data, it's how do we make sense of all the data? So, you know, we've gotten pretty good at the basics of how to do digital image processing. We teach that in class. It's kind of fundamental science at this point in time. But I think we're the, in the remote sensing lane where things are going is how do we automate change detection to get a human in the loop to say, here's two different images. Something's changed in this one area that I care about. You need to look at this new image sort of a thing. So that's, that's one area that I think in our, our discipline things have changed. And so when you talk about this, and I hear about hear this, it sounds like this is a space for artificial intelligence to perhaps get heavily involved in, in you know in processing this data. Is that true? That's definitely right. Artificial intelligence, machine learning is definitely areas. In fact, the last couple of years, I've I've selected some people from our computer science program to go to the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency to work on these sorts of projects. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of other really fun technologies out there hitting the the field. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've got such a, an interest in the major today. The small UAS platforms and the sensors that you can put, because you know, you've got your, your cell phone and pretty remarkable the photos you can take on them. Yeah. So we've miniaturized these cameras that are amazing. And because they're so light, you can put them on these small drones. You literally can just create a box on your cell phone and say, go fly that area at whatever flying height. You can specify, I want the pixel size to be a certain size. It'll determine what that flying height is. And it just goes and does it and comes back, which is really remarkable. And that's not just making a, a single photo on the ground to make maps. We can do 3D modeling from that. If you have overlapping photos, I can tell you how tall a building is. We can bring that into a virtual reality platform and, and put immerse ourselves into that terrain. So we're partnering with the Sim Center here to create walkthroughs of terrain for different training experiences and things like that. So the virtual reality space, augmented reality space, coupled with the easy access of drones is really kind of a fun synergy between Sim Center and, and the GIS program and computer science. And you've seen this technology make a difference in, in warfare. You're, I mean, the, in Ukraine, this, is, this has been used in volume, right? Drones with the technology you just discussed, being able to bring data back and that has been an asymmetric advantage to some extent. Absolutely. And it's, you know, some people think of those drones as sensors that can see during the day, but we've got really low cost drones out there that you put a thermal sensor on it, you can fly it at night and you'll see really clearly where enemy forces could be aligned with these drones. And they're, you know, when they come back, we're talking, you know, the order of just a couple meters accuracy very rapidly, you can identify those. Wow. All right, so let me move on to your, your research interests. So again, photogrammetry, global navigation satellite systems. We already talked about LIDAR, remote sensing, and geographic information systems. So tell me a little bit about 
about some of those and why you're interested in those? Sure. So photogrammetry would be in kind of its its simplest form. It's overlapping photos from an airborne platform. That can be overlapping photos from an airplane. It can be overlapping photos from a helicopter. It can be overlapping photos from a drone. True photogrammetry would be high-end cameras, spaced out, taking photos with the exact right overlap where we can get those three-dimensional structures. Most of the bit, the really good maps that were made in the 1950s, 60s for the U.S. was all done using photogrammetry. That's how we got contour lines, hmm. was these overlapping photos. Photogrammetry is morphing a little bit with drones into something we call structure from motion, which is more of a, a software platform that does pixel matching and stitches everything together. It's a, a lot faster process. We've got the software today. So when we fly these drones, you know, we, we flew a, about a 0.1 square mile area out in Hawaii this spring or this fall. And we had 1,300 photos from this one flight. And we threw them all into the computer and let it run overnight. And we had a beautiful set of products. We had a photo that was corrected for elevation. So the scales uniform across it. We had a digital surface model that told us the tops of vegetation and all of that. And then we had a digital elevation model that would remove all that vegetation from the ground. And with those products, a typical, you know, what we call an ortho photo that you could navigate off of, a DSM, a digital surface model, and a DEM, we can start extracting things like veg height, where are their buildings, what's the slope of the terrain, all of that. And that all goes into all sorts of different applications. When you start talking about helicopter landing zones, you need to know the slope. Sure. You need to know what the land cover is, and we can get all of that from those products. Okay, so let me, let me ask you about this. Something that you're working on, which I think has taken on extraordinary importance in the contemporary national security environment, is mapping the Arctic. And also, you've done work with cadets along the Alaska Northern Slope at an Arctic site. I'd like you to talk a bit about how your work intersects with cadets, cadet internships that we call AIDs, partners from the Department of Defense and other government agencies, and the strategic importance of the Arctic. So let me start with the last first. Tell me about the strategic importance of the Arctic. Sure. I mean, it, it really kind of starts with the idea of the Earth is getting hotter. The sun is warming up. And as a result, the, the Arctic ice cap is likely to start breaking up and shipping lanes are going to open. Access to those areas are going to have all sorts of strategic impacts, new trading partners, shipping lanes, et cetera. Additionally, when the permafrost degrades, thaws out, what does that do to the infrastructure out there? And we know that with that thawing, the infrastructure is having issues. The pipeline is built to sustain some of that. But other things we're seeing is coastal erosion. The, with the sea ice covering uh, the, the northern sea, you get no wave action hitting the coastline. And with the land being permafrost, even if it does, there's very little effect on it. The U.S. Geological Survey placed some photos along the coast of one, one particular town. It's an amazing video. You see the sea ice thaw from June to August. You see one storm hit, and you see about 100 meters of these huge bluffs washed away in one storm. So there's all sorts of ramifications on coastal cities and their infrastructure, their microgrids, and their town halls and things like that for the impact of locals and natives, the infrastructure for pipelines and shipping, and then really from a 
a near-peer adversary if we ever had to get involved in the Arctic, understanding how cross-country mobility would be affected in summer months could also be areas of concern. How about extraction of natural resources? Is there great potential for that? I would say there's great potential for that. Yeah. Absolutely. So what type of work can be done with cadets in the Arctic and on the Arctic? We've got two ongoing projects. One of them is just being wrapped up where we were on the north slope of Alaska flying these small UAS platforms and looking at subsidence from the freeze-thaw action. That partnership is with the United States Coast Guard Academy and the Naval Academy in conjunction with a research grant with the Strategic Environmental Research Development Program and the Cold Regions Research Lab. The implications of that subsidence are far-reaching. What Navy is interested in is taking water samples and seeing what's the chemistry of the water. They've got experts to do that. They wanted us to do the mapping to see what was going on with the subsidence and the permafrost over the course of, it was really four years. We had a one-year break. But we would go out in June and then again in September, and we would difference the data we collected in June versus September, and then we would collect we would difference the data from 2019, 21, 22, and 23, and see what's going on as far as over time. One of the theories is that there may be a lot of methane gas trapped. And as the freeze-thaw action happens, we could be releasing methane gas, a greenhouse gas. Yeah. And if from a micro scale, if we can detect that, we can apply that at the macro scale and start running some models to say how significant is the, the thawing of the permafrost in that, at those latitudes. So that's, that's one of the projects that we've had going on. That one's wrapping up. We've got another proposal in to do work out on the coasts where we're looking at the coastal erosion process. We've done a lot of, we've talked about that for a while. We've done quite a bit of literature review and that proposal actually got submitted this week. So we're hopeful that over the next three or four years, we'll have the same partnership with the same service academies. We'll send the cadets out there and we'll talk with the villagers. We'll teach them how to use some of our technologies. We'll also go out there and we'll map and try and look at what's going on in some of these coastal towns. The other ongoing project is with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, where we're, we're looking at helicopter landing zones in all sorts of different environments and the, the considerations for an aviator when they want to land someplace. And so it's a, that environment is really austere. It's hard to tell what's there. And I'll give you an example that's kind of funny. The, the research out on the North Slope, really, Dr. O'Banion has been the, the key player on that. And he was out hiking around with some cadets one day, laying out our, our ground control that gets surveyed in so we can really align the imagery up really well. And he took a little step off what's called a tussock, which is a, a grassy little knoll, a couple feet high, and he slipped off of it. And next thing you know, he was at his waist, a little bit above his waist in muck. Yeah. And he had to get help to get out of there. Water started rushing into his feet and everything else. <laughs> you can only imagine landing a, a, a helicopter yeah. or trying to maneuver heavy equipment in that space. In the winter, when it's frozen, no problem. But as soon as it thaws, it's a problem. So looking at cross-country mobility, the impacts of whiteout and different types of terrain and vegetation out in that space is one of the things NGA is interested in. But all of this is is about partnerships. I mean, we, we can't go out there with the funding from my program to do this. It's NGA gives us money, the, the partnership with the Naval Academy, Krell, CERTIP, they fund all of these opportunities. And what they really see from this relationship is, I think, future Army officers, Navy officers, Coast Guard officers, understanding the problem that's out there, operating in austere environments, seeing what that is. So they get a, a, an education about that environment. 
And they also get the expertise of the service academies. So Dr. Matt O'Banion is one of the smartest people in this field. And the folks at Navy and Coast Guard are also. And when they give us a research grant, compared to other universities, they take a, we take a much smaller cut for processing of the money that almost every dollar that they give us goes to supporting that research. So those are some of the reasons why I think we've got a really robust partnership. Frankly, we're only limited by the number of people right now that we have that we can dedicate to this these efforts. Yeah, I think that's something that has been a, a great trend change at the academy is the number of these internships that we call AIDs. We send roughly any given year between 950 to 1,000 cadets on 300 to 350 of these different internships in different disciplines all over the world. What have you seen with the cadets you've worked with in these internships? Does this get them, like this is a form of experiential learning. And and so obviously they're excited, but what, what are some of the things that you've drawn out from the cadets as they participated in this? I can give you just a, a couple examples. Arlena Shala is a Kosovo cadet or was. She's now a lieutenant there. She went to USC's Innovative Creative Technologies Lab, which is sponsored by the Army Research Lab. She was flying drones out there for the summer, came back and did some really great research where she was using kind of a hidden camera on her shoulder and she walked through a building and was able to map the inside of a building using the sciences that she learned while at USC's ICT. She was able to publish some papers, present at some conferences, and subsequently she got a Knight Hennessy scholarship. John Erskine's another great example. I hope he decides to come back to teach at West Point. He got two AIADs internships at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, worked on two different projects published numerous works, and got a one-year Southampton scholarship in the United Kingdom. One of my partnerships was with the Southampton University a couple of years ago for helicopter landing zones because I grabbed John Erskine to, to be my second lieutenant leading the field expedition a couple of years ago when we went to Colorado, Alaska, and out in California. And he did everything. Everything he collected, he then put into his thesis. And so this supported him getting a master's degree, it supported his master's degree research. And then, frankly, it was when he participated in this AID, the four cadets that went on this trip were mesmerized by John. They thought he was the most amazing second lieutenant they'd ever seen. And I, I just watched him transform from a young cadet into a leader and a teacher. It was really remarkable. And I think that goes for almost all of the cadets have these similar experiences. They get exposed to some technology. They work on a project. A lot of times they come back and in our classes, we have a lot of final projects where we teach them something and then they apply it as a final project in the class. And they'll bring something that they learned at their internship for their final projects. And oftentimes they present that work at a GeoInt symposium that they hold every year or at the Federal Users Conference for Mesory or some other academic conference. I would though like to, to point out like as cadets are exposed in dirt and other places to mapping and, and all the other, you know, technologies that you've discussed today. How do you see this being useful for them regardless of, of branch or, or future job? Yeah. At, at least in the lens that I see the world, it's, it's the ability to think spatially. It's, you know, from a physical geography and human geography standpoint, it's, it's knowing the people on the planet, their religion, their beliefs, what shapes them, trying to see the world 
through their lens so we don't bring our perspective to theirs. I think we learned some pretty hard lessons early on in Iraq with with some of that. From a the mapping perspective and overlaying layers on a map, it's it's thinking spatially. I, I can't tell you how many times we did Macus as an armor officer where we have overlaid graphics talking about avenues of approach, obstacles, key terrain, those sorts of things to help you figure out where you want to place your people for a defense and where you might want to put your own obstacles up. And that's, I think it's just the repetition of, of looking at maps and thinking spatially within our discipline will help every officer. In some ways, even just being familiar with it and being able to navigate for planning purposes, you know, the list goes on. Where do you see this entire discipline going in 10 or 20 years? If there's a cadet listening to you today and you're saying, this is going to change dramatically in the next 20 years. And I know it's very difficult to ever prognosticate the future, but what do you see happening in 10 or 20 years in, in this space? Yeah, I think we're going to expect our soldiers to be technically competent with a lot of technology from this discipline. There's equipment being fielded and tested. It's called an in-fire. There's an in-fire equipment by the engineers. They're trying to put a drone with LIDAR on it that can be fielded at, at very low levels. There's all sorts of other great equipment on that that can be used for FOBs. But I think that we could see some rapid fielding of small UAS platforms that soldiers can use, infantry soldiers, armored soldiers, you know, everybody can use. I think we could have drones in the air ahead of convoys. I think we could have cameras on the outside of personnel carriers. So when you're inside a personnel carrier, you can put a device on and based on your orientation and your head's movement, you can see what's where. So when they drop a ramp and say contact in a certain area, you already kind of know where you're at. And in that headset, you've got a layer of geospatial data on it that you're familiar with, the landscape, that sort of thing. So when you go off that ramp and you, you can orient in the right direction. I think there's going to be a lot of virtual reality and augmented reality that could be used and could be harnessed. I think artificial intelligence and machine learning is is the wave of the future. And I think one of the things I've been encouraging our cadets to do is to take the the cyber track here because I think programming and understanding that and harnessing that in our, our software will make them super marketable in the coming years because I really think we're going to get to the point with all the data capture around the world being able to, to know and automate certain processes will be huge. And then the final one, I think, is just the robust nature of how much data is going to be collected. People that are good at data management, data storage, where do we put all this? How do we catalog it and make it accessible for people to use will be another key component to this discipline. And the rest is, I will tell you, I didn't even think about small UAS I didn't think about laser scanning or augmented reality in 1999. That wasn't even on the forefront of my brain. And here we are less than 20 years later, and those are the really cool technologies. So what's next? I have no idea. I do think that there's a lot of talk of GPS having some limitations. We talked about the possibility, really inexpensive to jam global navigation satellite systems, inexpensive to do. I think we're going to look at some alternatives for that. And when you're imaging the entire earth every day, you can get a lot of information about the earth. If we can get to the point where we can store the data effectively, thinking about updating maps on your, your car's GPS, if you have that information and then you have something, maybe it's a drone, something else tied to seeing you and then seeing the train around you using what we would say resection, if you remember resection from land navigation when you were, your, you were a yearling, we could find some key points and say this is where you're at. 
and that would require no jamming. The only jamming piece of that is from the drone to your system, as opposed to jamming all of GPS. So I think something like that is is potentially coming as well. And that's just spitballing a little bit of what I think oh, could be coming. That's fantastic. All right. So let me just ask you a few questions. So why is why is Dirt the best major in the academy? It's only the best major for you if it's what inspires you. That was the most politically correct answer. Well, I have that's fantastic. I, I thought I wanted to be an economics major. You have a great future. <laughs> you have a great future in another form of some kind. I would never push somebody to be in our major that it's not the right fit. It's it inspired me. I think we come to West Point to inspire others. It's easy to inspire people on the things that you're interested in, but you don't come to West Point to to sell somebody a used car. You, you bring them here to mentor them and help them find the right path for them. We're all wired differently. I like it because it helps us think spatially. It's evolving rapidly and it's applicable both academically, militarily, and in industry. Well, what does teaching at West Point mean to you? Patriotism, mentoring, giving back. Yeah, it was my first family. And a couple people here really inspired me, inspired me down this path, and I get to give that back. Hey, Will, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for uh, taking the time. This has been fascinating. Again, it is always humbling to be able to talk to our faculty. I'm very thankful that you took the time to, to share some of this with us today. And it's, again, it just highlights not just the excellence of our faculty, but also give us great confidence about the direction of our army and our nation because, you know, we're all, clearly we're focused on on not just fighting and winning in the contemporary battle space, but the future battle space. So again, thanks for all that you do. Thank you, sir. I'd also uh, say, please be sure to tune in to the Inside West Point Ideas That Impact podcast next month. Remember, you can find this podcast as well as the other podcast journals and books hosted or published by the West Point Press at westpointpress.com. And until next time. <laughs>